and open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Today's title is No Other Gospel. As we started several weeks ago, our walk through Galatians, we started out with the Apostle Paul's conversion of what he was before and what he became when he met the risen Lord. Uh, I thought it best to speak about Paul's conversion before I went into the book of Galatians because you cannot read Paul without reading Paul's conversion in every one of his letters. He pours out his heart, he pours out his love for Christ uh, in every one of his letters of what Christ has done for him. So Paul's heart is written all over this letter and I want everybody to recognize that as we go through it over the probably next three to four months and we break down text by text. Let's read verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is present, preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For I am, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to breathe upon your word, upon the preaching tonight, Father God, so that we too can never be deceived by another gospel. That we too, Father God, can have ears to hear, as Paul recognized immediately something different was going on in Galatia. And it was not the original gospel, Father God. Father, help us in our endeavor to cut it straight, to understand this marvelous grace in Christ we have received when we were born again, Father. God, help us, strengthen us, open up our hearts, Father God, inform our minds of the marvelous gospel of Jesus Christ, I ask. In his name we pray. Amen. The letter of Galatians is a marvelous defense of the will of God. The will of God so succinctly summed up here by Paul as Jesus Christ rescuing sinners from this present evil age. This free pardon for sin for all races, people, tribe, nations, and tongues, not just the Jews, was accomplished voluntarily by Jesus Christ on the cross. There's something about this letter I like to just comment on that is a, a truly strategic work of God in the defense of His Son, His life, His death, His resurrection, a strategic work of God. What we have going on here is one of the greatest challenges to the churches of all ages. 
it's subtraction by addition. That if we add some things to it, you're really subtracting the grace of God out of the whole equation. Just try to make the gospel a little more presentable. Make spruce it up a little bit. You know what I mean? All this crucifixion and this. Get rid of all that. Let's spruce this up. Let, let, let it make it look. Uh, let's advertise it as something a little better. Because Paul's preaching just really ain't cutting it. So what God does is he sets down in Holy Scripture once and for all a clear defense of something that's going to plague the Christian church for over 2,000 years. And if Christ does, he tarries and waits 2,000 more years. It will always be with us. Men will always try to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men will always try to add something into it. Make it a little better. Whether it's good intentions or not, it's always subtracting the sufficiency of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit on our hearts for some kind of requirements. We'll get into that later as we go through. But before we get into the text, there's some key thoughts key terms and key words we need to know. And you need to know as you go through the book of Galatians, I don't want you, uh, prayerfully these introductions really whet your appetite for the uh, letter of Galatians. I pray it whets your appetite for all of Paul's writing. I pray it whets your appetite for all of Scripture. Because the Word of God is teaching us something. But the key thoughts here in Galatians are this. There was an attack on the Gospel. What saves man what sanctifies him, and how God accepts people now. God accepts people through no other way but through faith in Jesus Christ. Not how good you can dress yourself up, not how well you can verse yourself in Scripture. He accepts you totally and purely and solely on nothing else but Christ alone. Period. You cannot add to it. You cannot make it better. If you are born again, if you are a Christian, understand something. You cannot be more accepted by God than the moment you were converted. If you lived a thousand years, you can never be more accepted by God. You are accepted and loved perfectly by the Father. But unfortunately, if teachings that come in and requirements come in, they can burden God's people. Paul used the word trouble here. And it troubles God's people, and people think they have to get into a performance-based works initiative to try to please God. Please let me tell you something about the gospel. It's not my comprehension. I can't. It's not my plan. It's God's plan. He accepts you in Christ, period. That is it. That is the message of the gospel. And that message, when it's fully received by the heart, to the pure, all things are pure, it will change you. It has to change you, because the God of grace has given you the Holy Spirit. He's a transforming spirit, and He will have His way in our hearts. I don't have to add to the gospel. All I need to do is preach it. That's what Paul did. So one of the key thoughts here is that there was an attack on this wonderful message. It's the will of God. It's the heart of God. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. The second thing is an attack on Paul's apostolic authority, which he defends all the way through chapter 2. So as you're reading this six, six uh, chapters of Paul, understand something. You will see Paul constantly defending the gospel. He's articulating what the gospel is. He's also defending his apostolic authority. There's key terms also that need to be uh, learned. And one is, as we spoke a couple of weeks ago, Judaizers. Though you won't find that word in the epistle, it is there nevertheless. These were so-called Jewish converts from Jerusalem who say they believed in Christ, 
But they also believed that you needed to keep the law of Moses simultaneously. A sort of second conversion. If you really want to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew to become a Christian. Basically, that's what they were saying. And that a Gentile, that's a non-Jew, needed to be circumcised and follow certain full laws in the Jewish calendar, a.k.a. the law of Moses, in order to be saved. Just faith in Christ was not good enough. Paul had it wrong, they said. Paul started the work, but he can't finish it because now we have to come and we have to circumcise you and make you more Jewish because God only works through the Jewish people. Understand something? If they would have said that before Christ came, they would have been right. There was a time that God only used the Jewish nation. They were right. But what they were wrong about is God only uses the Jewish nation now. That they were totally wrong with. Now the doors of heaven have been wide open through the shed blood of Christ. And people from every tribe, nation, tongue come in and are accepted by God by pure faith. The Jewish people could not really grasp this. The rest of the epistle goes on to show that. There's another word called legalism. Legalism is more of a concept. They're not people. Of, and it's a concept of certain requirements that need to be met in order to be pleasing to God. Legalism. Uh, understand something. We'll speak about it when it comes to application, how it's still around today. But uh, these are certain requirements. Everything we just spoke about, whether it's going to church or whether it's the law of Moses, whether it's circumcision, there's things added to make you right to God. Not just faith in Christ. You have to do something else. And we'll speak about that later on. But legalism is the concept. Judaizers were the proponents of this teaching. Those who teach rules and regulations were known as Judaizers, and uh, prayerfully you remember that word. Legalism is a natural state of the sinful human heart. I don't want anybody to forget that when we talk about legalism. It's a natural state of the sinful human heart. It believes it can, it can and does please God. Humanity really thinks that it can really please the almighty, holy, righteous, creator, lawgiver, and just judge of the universe totally on their own merit. That is absurd. But people think that. Religious people think that. They really think if I do enough good things and I feel good about myself and whatever, uh, that I'm accepted by God. It's a natural condition of the sinful human heart. But so is its counterpart, and that's called libertarianism. And that means that I can basically do whatever I want from apart, apart from God's will. That a man can, well, you know, if I just want to have sin, I'll sin, and I'm good enough to go to heaven anyway, and I have this secret hope. And there's this contradiction over here of motives. I can, and I can't. Or I can, and I won't. And Proverbs 16.2 sums it up best when it says it this way. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but God weighs the heart. And we see this contradiction of motives, but it's really in humanity. It's who we are as sinners. We really think we can please God, but we really think we can do what we want to do when we want to do it and pay no price for it. This is the human state. This is the depravity of the human heart. Humans are very biased on themselves. There's a key word when you read in the book of Galatians, it's called rescued, or delivered in verse 4. Uh, as I spoke about this last week and the week before, what it does, it's, it, Jesus uses this word in a different way. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, take it out or rip it out. 
Understand something. That's what Jesus did for us when He saved you. He, he took you out. He ripped you out. He rescued you. He delivered you from this present evil age of sinful immorality, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the prideful possessions of life. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it was at that time we were children of disobedience. That we followed the prince of the power of the air. But God rescued us. He in grace, He saved us and made us co-heirs with Jesus Christ. It's a key word. Understand something. Because you have religion or you have rescue, you choose what you want. You can spend the rest of your life in religion or you can spend the rest of your life as someone who's been rescued. A rescued person is indebted to Jesus Christ. It's a person who lives with a grateful heart. It's a person who lives always trying to please the will of God the Father who rescued them. From this present evil age, where were you and where were I when you were rescued? Can you remember the day of your salvation? Can you remember what was going on, the circumstances in your heart, the circumstances in your life, the confusion, the sin? Can you remember? I can remember 22 years ago clearly what God rescued me from. And I'm sure if you're saved today, you too can remember that which God saved you from. As Christians, we never are condemned by it. But it's fuel for gratitude. I never have to be condemned over my past actions. But man, those who are forgiven much, love much. And as we analyze our life, you and I as Christians should grow deeper in love with Jesus Christ every passing day. Because the truth of the matter is, we all sin much. And we've all been forgiven much. Key word when you're going through here is rescued as opposed to religion. Last week I spoke about the first five verses. In those five verses, Paul lays out the major de themes of the epistle. The major theme is Paul's apostolic authority is from God, not from man. Unlike his opponents, his opponents were sent by other men. But Paul found these churches on the authority of Christ. He didn't show up with a band following him. He didn't show up with 30 people or an entourage. It was him and a couple of people. And they would just go into the open air. They would go into a synagogue. And they would start proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins. And people would be converted. The power of God would come. There would be many healings and miracles and mighty works, and people will be genuinely converted. That was Paul's apostolic authority. He didn't need a letter, a certificate. God was his certificate. He opened up his mouth and he's preached, and God filled it with good things. That was his requirement. That was his qualifications. The second thing we want to see in here as you read through Galatians is the sufficiency of Christ's redemption. He rescued us from this evil world. It is God's will. Throughout these six chapters, Paul is always defending the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation. Nothing else needs to be added to our faith because faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, is enough. There's nothing you need to add for, to it. So throughout this Paul is making a point. There's a hint here. What he's basically saying, he says in Romans chapter 15 verse 4, the law is over. Christ is the fulfillment of the law and he is righteousness to everyone who believes now. That's what Paul is making the statement in Galatians. The law is over. 
The Mosaic law is over because it has been fulfilled in the perfect Jew, the suffering servant of Yahweh. Period. The Messiah has come. And now the blessing that was promised to Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you is coming to pass. And the Judaizers, the illegalists, did not like that message. Mm-hmm. Verses 6 to 10. I am astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not there's another one but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let that man be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received already, the one that saved you, the one that rescued you, let that man be accursed. For am I now seeking to approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul, in all his letters, understand something and don't miss this. Paul, in all his letters, starts off with a salutation. That's the first four verses, first five verses. And then he would go into a greeting. That was common practice 2,000 years ago. And then Paul would usually start off with saying, I give thanks or prayers of or praises for the people, but Paul here in Galatians does that give any thanks. He gives no prayers, and he offers no praises. He goes right into a rebuke. A matter of fact, a very scathing rebuke. Uh, there should be a hint by now, you should understand something. He comes out swinging because the problem is serious, eternally serious. There's no time to warm up over here. Paul comes out with a knockout punch immediately. He sets the stage for what this is all about. This is no nonsense. Please understand, he's telling the Galatians, do not be troubled by another gospel. There is no time for small talk. Mm -hmm. This is serious. This letter is urgent, it's life-threatening, and this tone is throughout the whole letter. You cannot read the six chapters in this letter and not see that strong, urgent tone by the Apostle Paul as he goes to wrestle back from the Judaizers the precious gospel that saved these Galatians a year or two earlier. Let me speak about the text. Verse 6. Paul says, I'm astonished. Means amazed. He's, he's wondered. He's, he's overwhelmed. He, he can't comprehend it. Jesus uses the same word in Matthew chapter 8 about the centurion that needed his servant healed. And Jesus was going to go to the house. He said, no, Lord, you don't have to go to the house. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus was amazed at his faith. So amazed that he stepped back and he said, such faith I have not seen in all of Israel. He was astonished. Christ was astonished. Paul was astonished. If you understand Galatians, if you know Acts 14, these churches were, were marvelously birthed by the Apostle Paul. In his preaching, the Holy Spirit would fall down and they recognized that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified for their sins. Miracles took place. Great work. They were suffering for the name of Christ. A church was birthed supernaturally. 
Paul saw in this marvelous, genuine, authentic work of the Spirit of grace, as he says here, the Spirit of the grace of Christ. No wonder he's astonished now when he gets a letter saying what's going on there. He's like, no, this can't be. He's, he's overwhelmed. He's perplexed. These are my children. I was there when they cried out in repentance and faith and received the Holy Spirit. I was there at the birth of the church. I'm the father of the church. This is like a parent coming home one day and their, their children aren't the same anymore because something has transpired. Their, their little girl, their little boy who's been going to school now is smoking pot or, or drinking or falling into sin. And their, their whole demeanor changes now. Their whole personality changes. And, and they're perplexed. They're astonished. They're amazed. What happened to my children? Did someone trouble you? Did someone distort you? Paul is all amazed of what's going on. And he pulls no punches. He doesn't say, oh, I understand. You're just naive, you young Christians. He says, no, you're deserting Christ. He puts the blame on them before he goes to the Judaizers. He says, you're deserting him who called you. He, re he refers them back to their salvation. Do you remember how wonderful it was when you received the Holy Spirit? Galatians 3 says, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing in faith? The miracles that God does be amongst you, is it by working of the law or is it by hearing in faith? These men understand something when, it, when Paul preached. The night before, these people were pagans. Or they were devout Jews of some sort. The next day, they went to the temple. And there's a man there preaching about the Savior Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden they start to feel something in their heart they'd never felt before. Religious affections. They start thinking about their sin. They start thinking about the work of God. They start thinking about salvation. They start thinking about eternity. Do you remember the day you started thinking about eternity? Do you remember when things started to change in your thinking? Do you remember when God thought, you thought more about God than yourself? Do you remember those days? That's what Paul is doing. He's reverting them back. To the day of their conversion, their salvation. When they received the Holy Spirit. And their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. He's saying, don't you remember? Don't miss this. You are deserting Him who called you into the grace of Christ. You were not working with rules and regulations and requirements. You were sinning. And one day you heard a message. And it changed you. I mean, that's my life story. I didn't get warmed up to come to church. I came to church. And I was apprehended by God. I heard the message. The message got me in preaching. It got me in the songs. It got me in the love of the, the people around me. I've never experienced this before. Why? Because it was the Holy Spirit drawing me. Just like the Holy Spirit drew you. And just like the Holy Spirit drew the Galatians. Don't desert Him. Don't go into rules and regulations now. That's not what brought you into the grace of Christ. Are you trying now to perfect in the flesh that started in the spirit, Paul says? He's beside himself. Remember something. Different message, different God. Don't let anybody preach a message contrary to what Paul preached. It's a different God. No matter how sincere, no matter how well-meaning, no matter how it sounds, 
no matter how many people are in the church, no matter how many books are being sold, no matter how many people are filling the stadiums, it's not the gospel. If it's not according to what Paul preached. Understand something. He's got 13 letters. It's an easy read. Spend the rest of your life studying Paul and you will understand the gospel. And you will not be deceived. Paul saying this false gospel, which is no really any gospel, is no gospel of hope. It offers you nothing. He goes on to say in the third chapter, if you're going to take the law, you have to live by the law. And he says, if you break one law, you're under a curse. For the wages of sin is death. Christ already paid that for you, already accepted that. You're going backwards now. Don't desert him who called you. Don't miss it. If you really want to understand what's going on in Galatians, think about your own conversion. Were you doing spiritual religious tumult for God to get his attention? Did you really shine yourself up the day you were converted and say, you know something, I'm going to get God's attention. I'm going to put my best suit on, I'm going to go to that church down the block and I'm going to go get saved. No. Most of us come in deceived, broken, beaten, hopeless. That's most of us. Or worse, deceived and confused, thinking we were right with God until we heard the right message. And then we realized we had to get right with God. And that's what Christ did. This is no message of hope. This is binding people up with rules and regulations. It's distorting the gospel. It's troubling believers. Paul quickly calls down fire. He calls down anathema. It means to be eternally damned. It's the seriousness of the crime because there's only one hope in this world. And that is the gospel according to what Paul preached. It's consistent with John, it's consistent with Peter, it's consistent with Hebrews, it's consistent with Christ, it's consistent with the prophets. But no one makes the gospel more clear in all the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. Please understand sir, without Paul's teaching, we would be so deficient in the understanding of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Paul opens up our mind to the heart of God. So serious is the situation that Paul puts not just himself under a curse, but even angel from heaven to preach anything contrary Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. That's what saves and transforms. The only reason I'm here 22 years later is because God entered into my and he didn't hand me the Old Testament. The Bible says he wrote the Old Testament on our hearts. He wrote the law favorably on our hearts. We are led by the Spirit of God now. Verse 10 puts things in perspective. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It put things into perspective. The pleasing of the man is, be, is behind us. Man pleasing is behind this whole situation. Religious externalities instead of a new heart. What people think is more important than what God is, what God has done in rescuing sinners from their sins in his time for his own glory. Understand what Jesus, I mean what Paul is saying here. 
these Judaizers that came down and perverted the work of Paul were doing it for this reason. To make it look good at the church of Jerusalem. They were pleasing men. They were seeking the approval of man. What the Galatians were doing, they were falling for this. Let me give you a little history here. Most likely, the Galatian church, four churches, southern Turkey, when a church was birthed, when a person became a Christian in the Old Testament, or in, the, in this time, they were ostracized by their family, their friends, their community, their work. Life was never the same again. One of the most poignant scriptures about this is Acts 14.22, which Paul is saying to the Galatians, it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. Understand something, when the Galatian Judaizers came, it sounded good. They were part of a family now. Look, at, I can get circumcision. I can receive, I can receive laws and rules. Where's Paul anyway? Paul left. Now someone's coming in and they're going to act like my father now. Now I feel like I'm part of something. Now I feel like I'm home. Paul said, no, I don't want none of this. No, you, you, you're, you're your own people now. Galatians, you don't need the church. You are your own people. You will know at all. You don't know anything to the church at Jerusalem. It's, it's a little awkward to understand, but you have to understand. That's what Paul is saying. Am I now trying to please man or God? Paul could care less what the church of Jerusalem thought. God shows no partiality to man. But the Galatians were young converts. They got caught up in this. They were trying to please men. Paul would never fall for it. The major thought here comes from the word distort, which means to change, to alter what's going on, what God had done. And people would come and add to the gospel and distort it. They changed the whole thing. They didn't recognize that there's nothing to add to it. You don't have to add anything to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. They distort it, they change it, they manipulate it. As a matter of fact, it doesn't work anymore. Once you start adding to it, it stopped to work. And that's important. When we speak about application, which we're going to do now, we'll, we'll spend a little time on that. Here we go. Few in the Christian church today will find themselves being confronted by the keeping of the law of Moses and circumcision. I hope, anyway. But few people here, or anybody in the Christian church, 2100 years almost later, in, in, in 21st century America, is going to be confronted with this. But that doesn't mean we're safe from Judaizing legalistic creatures. The approach to our Christian life is very sensitive. We need to be very careful. Even without knowing, we can fall prey to this kind of teaching. It has a 21st century contemporary twist to it. <coughs> Things creep in uh, innocently without realizing it, especially a young, amongst young converts or those without any biblical foundation. People that really don't have spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment is not given to you when you're saved and all of a sudden you can figure out everything. That's not spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment is sharpening your mind and your heart on what the truth is. Discernment is truth in application against error. That's discernment. And it takes time to grow in that. 
That's why it is so important to be in a, a strong, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching community of believers. So your discernment can grow. Where the Bible is put forth first and foremost. That the preaching of the pulpit is primary to your Christian growth and your Christian understanding. That is the role of preaching. It is priority in the Christian church. Throughout my life, and I've seen my own failures in this area, and, and, and others, and reading, it, 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 it sneaks in, it's a corruption. It's usually promoted with the deepest sincerity. This is the danger, so let us pay close attention, because it's behind this deep sincerity that legalism steps into our lives and distorts the genuine work of grace in your life. Before You could be sitting here today, and you don't even realize that you have requirements on you. You can be living under self-imposed requirements to please God. I'll ask you now without a show of hands. Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves you and accepts you the way you are? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is working in you His will and His good pleasure? Do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt there's nothing you can do to be more accepted by God? Do you struggle with guilt? Do you struggle with shame? Do you struggle with sin in your life? Then you might have requirements on your life that you don't even know about. We all can fall into this, and most likely, most of us will, to one degree or another. We live in a world of many religious, philosophical, ideological ideas. They're all weighing in on our spiritual life. Everybody has an opinion about God. Everybody has an opinion about what morality is. Everybody has an opinion on how to go to heaven. Everybody has an opinion on what's right, what's wrong, what's true, what's false. Everybody does. And most people are not afraid to share Oh, that's good for you, but I'm all right. I was witnessing somebody the other day, a hard-headed materialist, uh, does well, and, and, and he said, I was like, you know, we're sinners. He goes, yeah, we're all sinners, even Jesus. And I said, well, you, this way you got it wrong. <laughs> you got a little wrong. Maybe that's why you're not believing yet. You know, Jesus was not a sinner. But understand something. Everybody has a thought. Everybody wants to share it. And this kind of stuff sneaks into our life and without recognizing it can start to shape and form the way we approach our religious life with Christ. There are many voices vying for our attention. We're going to apply it three ways. Then I'll preach on verse 10. Institutionalized dis distortions. Evangelicalized distortions and personal distortions of the gospel. These many distortions, these personal ones that are really the ones that concern me the most. We really need to take a daily deep search of our heart about the personal distortions of the gospel of Christ. That's how wicked we are as sinners. Even though we're saved, we can distort the marvelous work of Christ and the Holy Spirit on our heart. But institutionalized distortions are... Obvious, the Mormons, or maybe the Jehovah Witnesses, or maybe Seventh Day Adventists. These these group, not the Seventh Day Adventists. You, we believe you can be saved in there. Roman Catholicism, unfortunately, is a system that has added so many things to the gospel that it's it, it, it's if you know anything of the New Testament, you can see the error and the anomalies instantaneously. There's so much added, and what happens is just the pure, simple gospel of salvation by grace, salvation by faith, and Jesus alone is what gives us eternal life. It's 
You don't see it anymore. It's distorted and it becomes a system. And within that system, by God's grace, some people can get saved. But unfortunately, they stay within a system and they never really grow as a Christian. There are many institutionalized uh, examples we can give, but time is too short to spend too much time on that. But that's usually obvious, the institutionalized distortion of the gospel. Either the deity of Christ or the message of how a man is saved through simple faith in Jesus Christ. I call something evangelical distortions. These are true Christian churches that know that it's by grace. By faith in Christ alone. They're evangelical. They believe that the word of God is the infallible word of God. We are an evangelical church. But that does not mean that we cannot be susceptible to legalism. We can easily be susceptible to legalism. And what happens is that what we're looking for is any practice or any attitude or any theological idea that adds to the gospel and the sufficiency of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It sounds like a lot, but it's there. Anything that a church puts up that says to be part of the group you need to do this as opposed to just faith in Christ is legalism. It's a distortion of the gospel. The only thing that requires you to walk through that door is your faith in Christ. That's all. Your need for Christ, it makes no difference. You can wear whatever you want, Dress modestly, please. Yes. You can come in five minutes late, I'd rather you don't. You can come ten minutes early, I'd rather you do. It makes no difference, You're still, I'm going to love you. It makes no difference what you put in the basket, I could care less. I can be more concerned about your souls than anything else. I love you, I want you to love God, and if we need money, you'll give to God. Because God is doing a work on your heart. Here's one thing that can become a requirement in legalism and evangelical Christianity. Tithing. Now, understand something. Tithing is a wonderful thing, but it is not a New Testament commandment. Tithing, sometimes people feel unaccepted. Or what happens is a class warfare starts within the church, and I've seen this. And people don't realize it. There's so much pressure from the pulpit to give 10% that if you don't, there's a sort of shame involved. Self-imposed. Listen, I've been tithing since the first six months of my salvation. It's one of the greatest joys of my life. But understand something. As a pastor, I cannot command you to do it. The Bible doesn't teach it. I recommend that you do it because God loves a cheerful giver. That's all I can do. From that, it's between you and God. Listen, there's, there's, the, the building has holes in it. It has leaks. There's, the church always needs money. But you can't command God's people to give. And when people start to do that, people can start to feel less than. It becomes that they, those that do and those that don't. And what happens is this, on a quantum level, barriers, barriers are set up. And people feel less than and feel spited or slighted because they don't feel like they've given enough. It's pressure. It should never, that is a distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Give as your heart has planned to give. And give it joyfully unto the Lord. But it is not a commandment. And it shouldn't be put on God's people. Amen? Please understand that. Something else in the evangelical church is called experiences. 
experiences come by maybe tongues or visions and dreams and prophesying or long prayer times and rapturous experiences with the Holy Spirit or maybe holy laughter. That's been a new one lately. And, it's, and what happens is that everything here that I just mentioned except this laughter movement is legitimate New Testament experiences. But what happens is that these things come to define the church. That if you're not speaking in tongues, that you don't fit into the church. If you're not having these four-hour prayer meetings with the Holy Spirit all by yourself, there's, there's something missing in your spiritual life. If you're not studying the Bible six hours a week or six hours a day, you're not as spiritual as somebody else. Experiences are wonderful. I, I pray you have them. I pray you enjoy them. But I pray they don't define who you are. I pray God pour out His Holy Spirit here, but what defines Sonship Ministry is not our experiences, it's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what defines who we are. That's what defines us as a people. Not experiences. I pray that God gives you everything. But it doesn't define you. What defines you is your faith and acceptance by God. That's it. That's what defines us. Just a simple devotion to Jesus Christ and the effective ministry of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts to transform us, sometimes quietly. The sudden, overwhelming experiences of the Spirit is exalted as common practice in many churches. People feel left out. I'm not speaking from someone who's reading this, I notice firsthand people feel left out, or worse, they feel unspiritual. That God doesn't love me. I, I don't feel Him like everybody else is experiencing God or feeling God. I've counseled more people in that back room who sat down and said this very same words, I don't think God loves me anymore. Because I don't experience Him like other people are experiencing. And I let people talk, and then I counsel them. But it's not about experience. It's about faith in Christ. Never get your eyes that you believe in Jesus Christ off. Don't ever get your eyes off that fact. I ask you today, is Christ your Savior? That is it. From that point, let God work great miracles into your heart. Don't seek the experiences. Understand something. You are fully accepted. Apply faith and hold on to the promises of God. If God wants to have you have experiences, bless God. But don't let them ever define who we are as a people. I ran into a person I've known for many years. Somebody who had a great effect on my spiritual life as a young believer. And he told me about this great, exciting spiritual experience he had. And as a pastor, I listened uh, patiently as he defined and articulated point by point what took place one night. I asked him a couple of questions. Asked him how he was doing. I didn't deny this supernatural, subjective experience he had. I wasn't there. I have no idea. But I asked him a couple of things. I said, in the last four years, how many churches have you been part of? He says, well, that's interesting. None. I've gone to six, but no one has had the experience I had. I said, how are you and your wife doing? Well, you know, there's trouble. I said, how's your moral life doing? Well, and he showed me the negative effect of this spiritual experience. When you have a genuine experience with the Holy Spirit, you will love God. 
You will love people. You will love the Christian church. You won't be judging people through the prism of your experience. All you will want to do is love people. That is the genuine experience of the Holy Spirit. Anything that divides and conquers is not of God. God comes and works a miracle of grace to bring me closer to you, not further away from you. A house divided cannot stand. That's the work of Satan. It's out there. If you have not been exposed to this kind of teaching, this kind of thought, you will be by the time God takes you home. Be careful of it. But there's something else within evangelical distortions of the gospel, and that's education or knowledge. And what we put too much headiness on how much we can learn. But understand something, the Bible says knowledge puffs up. We are a teaching church. We do everything we can to promote Christian education. We do it on Sundays, we do it from the pulpit, we do it on Mondays, we do it on Thursdays, we do it on Saturdays in small groups. This is what we do. We do everything to promote that. But knowledge and understanding only goes to strengthen love and service to other people. That is it. It is not a personal attainment for a personal ambition to lift ourselves up over other people. It is for the purpose of humbling us and making us more transparent and more like Christ to become servants of all people. Knowledge supports love. That's all. The more you know, the more you should love and serve. Simple as that. The more I learn and understand the gospel, the smaller Brian Martin gets. I want to hide from God. I loathe myself compared to what Christ has done for me. I think Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I understand that. I understand as I look at my own life in comparison to Christ, the Christ I see clearer today than I did 20 years ago, the Christ I know better today than I did 10 years ago, the Christ I studied this morning and prayed to this morning and cried out to this morning. He humbles me and He breaks me of all my pride. That's what knowledge does. That's what knowledge is supposed to do. It's not to lift us and elevate us above anybody else. Personal distortions. If not careful, these are worse. Simply put, it sounds like this. I know the Bible says this, but I feel. I know the Bible says that, but I feel. That's when I step back and go, oh, distortion, distortion 101. One's feelings of personal happiness takes place over the written word and will of God. That is a personal distortion of the gospel. And begins to distort the gospel message of take up your cross and follow me, as Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That means utterly deny himself of all worldliness. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life in this world will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Personal distortions of the gospel. I know, but are you a Christian? There are no buts left. You got no bag of buts. I'll leave that alone. But is gone. There are no more buts. 
You're crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who liveth in you. In the life you live now, you live by faith in the Son of God who died and rose again on your behalf. There are no buts. The Bible says it. So be it. Amen. When we cry out to God in brokenness, when we come to face to face with our weakness, and God's grace is sufficient. Or this one. Personal uh, distortions. Sometimes we struggle with low self-esteem. Sometimes we can struggle with prolonged periods of the flesh. And we can begin to think that, how can God truly still accept me? Or how can God truly take me back after what I have done? You're distorting the gospel. You are distorting the gospel. We need to preach the message that Paul preached and that the Galatians received every day to us. And some people, depending on personal, emotional, philosophical dispositions, need to preach it all day long to themselves. We need to remind ourselves that God is fully satisfied with us. If you've been on the longest backslide and you come back, you are totally accepted. You don't have to do anything but come and receive His mercies that are new every morning. There is no condemnation. God accepts us immediately, like He did the first time. We need to be careful of that. I'm not growing in my Christian life. I'm not reading enough. I'm not praying enough. I, I, I'm not exp- I don't feel God enough. If you are tormented by that requirement... That self-imposed legalism. And all of us can fall prey to it. I will close with verse 10. For am, I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Pleasing man. Think about that. Pleasing man or pleasing God. You do the arithmetic. If we spend a life trying to please man, we will fail miserably. Absolutely miserably. External motivation has always been part of humanity. This ungodly desire has caused many distortions. In the attempt to please others, we compromise the gospel message of total commitment to Christ and His visible body, the church. Christians allow other people's opinions, whether political or religious, family opinions, mothers and fathers' opinions, spouses' opinions, to shape their Christian witness in the world. That is the distortion of the gospel. What will people think of me? What about my reputation? What will people say? They might laugh at me. And what happens? We live our life trying to please man and not God. I ask you this. If you're trying to please man, that that means you want man's approval. If you're trying to please another human being, you want another human being's approval. That means my eyes are totally off of God vertical and are on man horizontal. If I fully know I'm accepted by God, that's all that matters in life. 
I need not ever look down for the approval of men when I have already got the approval of my heavenly Father through faith in, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Period. Trying to please men is such a snag, it'll bring you down. And many of God's people are always trying to please people. They're fearful what people might think. What will my mother say? What will my father say? What would the... The tea. What would what would the guys say at work if I start speaking about Jesus? Maybe they'll say, "Praise God and get saved." Think about that. Tell your family. What will my family think? Well, maybe people will get saved. People get saved from hearing the message. All right. This is the last point, and it gets worse. You ready? <laughs> or trying to please religious leaders. Trying to please pastors. That's what the Galatian church was doing. They were trying to please the big shots up at the church of Jerusalem by being circumcised. And Paul says, I'll have nothing to do with that. I'm not trying to please man. I'm trying to please God. That's all that counts. And many Christians have hurt their spiritual walk by trying to please a religious leader or their pastor or somebody else. Sometimes innocently, other times hoping to get on the inside. Yeah, sure, Pastor, I'll do this. Yeah, sure, I'll do this. Yeah, sure, I'll do that. But there's a motive, there's an attention, there's an agenda behind that whole thing. That's man-pleasing. As we grow in Christ, as we grow as Christians, our one desire in our life should be to please God. And understand this. Most likely, this in turn will bring us into disfavor with people. People don't like to see committed Christians. They love lukewarm Christianity. The world loves lukewarm Christianity. They love Christians that say they're Christians, but they don't live as Christians. They live like everybody else. They're cussing, they're womanizing, drunkard, just, yeah, yeah. They love this, because there's no conviction in their life. But get someone who lives to please God. Understand something. You will find yourself in disfavor with many human beings. Because Jesus Christ did not come to bring... What did He come? Peace, but a sword. Don't forget that. Father, we thank You, Lord, for the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank You, Father God, that our aim in our life is to be pleasing to You and not to man. We thank you, Father God, that you have given us freely of your Son. You have rescued us from this present evil age. And Lord God, I pray for myself and for this congregation today that we do everything to make sure that we're not listening to a distorted gospel, that we are not projecting a distorted gospel by our lifestyles, Father God, but that people, when they see us, they truly see not just Christ, but His message of salvation, pure and free, through grace, through faith, in Christ alone, as your word says, to God alone be the glory.